Hello, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. No bilateral relationship on Earth is more important than that between the United States and China, the world's two largest economies and military powers, the two nations most likely to help or hinder global collaboration on any number of fronts. Once quite functional, this relationship has cooled, and preventing the further deterioration of ties between the two giants will be crucial for global stability. Asia Society Policy Institute President Kevin Rudd, a former Prime Minister of Australia, has been studying China for much of his life, focusing in recent years on its rivalry with the U.S. His latest publication, The Avoidable War, The Case for Managed Strategic Competition, is a collection of speeches that examine how the ground is shifting between the two countries. Rudd sat down for an interview with our Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski to discuss the dangerous year and decade ahead in the U.S.-China relationship. Kevin Rudd, great to have you with us. Uh, great to have you with us at the Asia Society generally and for this podcast in particular. And we want to get right to uh, this collection of speeches that you're publishing this week under the heading, The Avoidable War. And you've used and coined that term before. Uh, just want to delve a little bit into those three words. Uh, it presupposes, I think, that the U.S. and China might, if we're not careful, be headed towards a war, which is a kind of stark thing, obviously, to think about. Uh, why the title? Why the avoidable war in the first place? Uh, you said why the three words. Let's start with the definite article, the. Um, there's a lot of conflict in the world, uh, current and prospective, but there's one that really matters in terms of global security, global stability, the global economy, and frankly, uh, global climate change, and that is the US-China relationship. Everything else pales into insignificance. Other countries may wish it was less prominent. I'm just a realist. It is the prominent a relationship for the future, not least because of the scale of the two economies, first and second in the world, and the scale of the two militaries, first and second in the world. So let's underline the the here. Right. Okay. Underlined. So go to avoidable. Uh, and my good friend from Harvard, uh, Graham Allison, wrote a book uh, two or three years ago entitled uh, Destined for War. I'm sure it was the publisher's choice of a title rather than Graham himself. Publishers want to sell books. Uh, selling books about conflict uh, tends to be more successful than peace, brotherhood and uh, eternal handholding. Uh, so, but... The reality is that there is a growing assumption, I think, in Washington on both sides of the political aisle and in Beijing among both conservatives and some liberal reformers that structurally these two countries are destined for one form of conflict or another over time. Um, Graham Allison would say it's because of the internal dynamics of Thucydides' trap, that is, when you have an established power on the one hand and a rising and emerging power on the other, the structural dynamics of that relationship inevitably results in a competition for hegemony. That's Graham's argument. And so what I say is, but hang on, we're not captured by a bunch of uh, determinist forces in history. Uh, we have what the international relations uh, theorists and the political scientists would call agency, human agency. What human beings do and decide actually matters. We do change the course of history through individual leaders' decisions. That's why it's avoidable, apart from such a war being dumb. And why war? Well, um, 
The truth is, uh, look at the respective military establishments. Look at the fact that um, China's entire military contingency planning uh, centers on a Taiwan contingency, uh, that its deployment of uh, a modernized naval force uh, along China's east coast, but more importantly, its rocket forces along its east coast, are designed around a single contingency. How to push the Americans back to what's called in the literature the second island chain. Think in your mind, Tom, of that line of islands dotted from the Japanese archipelago in the north uh, through Guam and down to archipelagic Papua New Guinea in the south. Um, that the Chinese interest is pushing America back to that second island chain in order to make possible uh, at some stage in the future an action against Taiwan or to sufficiently deter the Americans from ever thinking about such an action, that Taiwan is uh, absorbed into the Chinese uh, universe uh, as a matter of course. That's why it's the avoidable and war. Right, although what you just said makes avoidable seem the one that may be in question, but maybe it brings to mind some other words that you use, and I think it's in the introductory uh, part of this new collection. A decade of living dangerously is, I think, the way you describe uh, we've just uh, entered a new decade, although some believe technically that's next year, but never mind. Um, but rough patch ahead. So whether it's avoidable or Graham Allison is right, we're destined. Talk about why you think, uh, is it to do with those conflicts in the sea and the islands and all the rest? Why a decade of living dangerously? That's a long time. I've chosen those terms carefully um, and not just... Um, uh, because of poetic license. And that's because many structural factors begin to come together uh, in the decade of the 2020s. And they're along these lines. Uh, firstly, uh, the aggregation of Chinese uh, economic power uh, and the relative size of the Chinese economy carries with it the possibility slash probability that by decade's end, China's economy, as measured in market exchange rates terms, uh, will be approaching parity with the United States. A whole lot of assumptions in that about growth rates, et cetera, in both countries. But um, if China today is about two-thirds the size of America, uh, projecting ahead even with more modest Chinese growth rates, uh, it is likely to achieve something approaching parity. The second is, um, if we look at the relative military balance in East Asia, uh, I think uh, the bottom line is China's uh, military capabilities anchored in its land-based rocket forces uh, will begin to achieve parity uh, with the United States. In fact, some uh, already, including the American military, describe China as a peer competitor. And that will become sharper and more real in the operational behavior, the exercises, etc., of the PLA Navy and Air Force uh, out to, as I said, the Second Island Chain. The third factor is if Xi Jinping's um, reappointed as Chinese president at the 20th Party Congress in 2022, which on the balance of probabilities will occur, then his style of more assertive leadership in uh, international uh, economic terms, in foreign policy terms, and international security policy behavior will become sharper. And there's a final factor as well, and that is the Taiwan 
uh, point that we alluded to before. And that is Xi Jinping um, sees the return of Taiwan as part of his political mission statement. Uh, if he's around for the 2020s, then uh, I believe, based on uh, the literature, uh, but also based on my sense of Chinese politics, is that Taiwan-related scenarios are likely to become sharper and sharper. Therefore, the risk of what I describe as crisis uh, and poor crisis management resulting in low-level conflict or high-level conflict over Taiwan becomes progressively greater the more we move through the 2020s. He may just become a more, I don't know whether it's assertive, aggressive, a more confident leader with, with all this passing of time. Well, let's look at a lesson from history recently. Um, uh, in the period from around about 2013, uh, 14, through to, let's say, 15, 16, Xi Jinping took something of a gamble. What was the gamble? The gamble was island reclamation in the South China Sea. And the gamble was that the Obama administration would not react militarily. And he based that on observable American behavior. He saw the Obama administration resile from um, military action against Syria after the Syrian administration used chemical weapons against right. the Syrian people. Uh, he also observed the Obama administration's response to the Russian action uh, in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. and Where the, were the red lines? And, right. and, uh, and Crimea and Donetsk. And therefore, um, Xi Jinping has made a further observation, and it's not just about President Obama, but... Um, President Trump, in response to recent um, uh, Iranian actions, leaving aside the decapitation of part of the Iranian military leadership, um, has um, not uh, responded directly militarily to the downing of US military drones, etc., nor against the bull-faced attack by the Iranians against Saudi oil facilities. Uh, so there are, there are net learnings which people like the Russians and people like the Chinese take from this. So if applied to Taiwan, uh, this is a much bigger call because 22 million people live in Taiwan. No one lives on those rocks in the South China Sea. But the strategic logic I'm advancing in this conversation is against those possibilities uh, that uh, you may see more and more of a Chinese predisposition to push against the door. Um, given their learning so far is that America is unlikely to react militarily, particularly as a full-blown military crisis and, and, and war in the Taiwan Straits would cost uh, the U.S. Navy dearly uh, and the U.S. military dearly and the U.S. Air Force dearly because China's capabilities are sophisticated without predicting an outcome. Right. So from that sobering thought, let's just take a quick step backwards quite a quite a big step backwards um just to ask you because i'm not sure we know you here at the asia society kevin rudd as a great student of china of the language the people uh the country as you've been hearing uh the current politics and the situation uh but i'm not sure our you know many in our audience will know you first and foremost as a prime minister and a foreign minister in australia um can you just uh Explain briefly how you first came. I think you wrote in your in your memoir, been fascinated uh, even as a child with China. Where did that fascination come from? And then you went at a young age to study there, right? 
I, um, I grew up in a small town in rural Australia on a farm, and I wasn't really much taken by animal husbandry um, So, and a career therein. Uh, neither of my parents had been educated, neither of them had uh, finished high school. But my mother always used to throw books at me, books on the world, including books on um, China. And so these were just general history books or uh, picture books of classical archaeology. So as a kid, um, not terribly interested in the number of cattle on the farm that day, I used to just sit under a tree and read this stuff. So it was purely based on maternal encouragement uh, and uh, a predisposition uh, not to become Crocodile Dundee. Um, and then uh, I suppose on top of that, I remember when China entered the UN, uh, my mother uh, came bursting into my bedroom with that day's newspaper saying, China enters the UN. And as an uneducated rural Australian woman said, this will change the world. There you go. So these things have an impression on you. So I went off to study Chinese at the university, Australian National University. Um, in fact, I never studied in China itself. I graduated uh, with uh, Chinese language and history majors. Um, and then... Um, Essentially, in the 80s, you were unemployable if you had China schools because the Chinese economy had not taken off. Right, right. So I, someone said you should apply to join the Australian Foreign Service. I didn't even know what one of those was. Um, so uh, I applied, and to my great surprise, I was admitted and eventually landed in the embassy in Beijing, and the rest is history. Right. Well, we're very glad that your mother threw those books at you. We'll just say that. She was a wise woman, my mum. So, so let's come back to the present then. Uh, we're, we're speaking just a few days after the uh, signing in Washington. I think you were uh, in Washington at the time uh, of what's been referred to as the phase one trade deal uh, between the United States and China. I, I was going to say ending, but it isn't really ending. I guess ending for the moment all the sturm und drang that we had around this issue and markets soaring and plummeting and, and businesses in this country at least not knowing what to do one day to the next. Um, can you say something about how you think, uh, do, do the, are the two countries, do you think, in pause mode now in terms of their hostilities on several fronts? Is there a sigh of relief in Beijing and in Washington? We know that Donald Trump is... Well, he's got an impeachment to worry about, but he has an election also in November. Do you think, reading the tea leaves there, that a, a calmer uh, sea between the two countries is in his interest? And I, I mean, what, what do you think in the short term are the, uh, the consequences of this thing getting done last week? Yeah, I was privileged to be invited to the signing ceremony at the White House. And I could see palpable signs of relief uh, on various faces, uh, both Chinese and American. But the truth is, this is the trade policy equivalent of Panmunjom. Um, it's a ceasefire. Uh, it's not even a peace treaty in terms of the economy. And God knows where it goes to from here. But guess what? Ceasefires are better than life fire, in my, ex my experience, both in uh, economics uh, and in uh, the military. So the fact we're not looking at any further increase in tariffs, we've, the fact that we've had some modest reduction in existing tariffs, and the fact that there are some agreements on the further protection of intellectual property uh, and uh, some agreements on forced technology transfer and some agreements on sectoral market opening. Uh, these, to be fair, are what I describe as five or six out of ten advances. But... The rest of the uh, economic engagement uh, continues. 
I'm skeptical about whether this is likely to result in full-scale decoupling. But the technology war is alive and well. Uh, Huawei is uh, simply emblematic of a number of parallel uh, decision points for America, its allies, and China in the decade ahead, the year of living dangerously. AI looms very close behind. Foreign direct uh, investment in both countries by China slowing radically into America. American numbers sort of holding up into China. Capital markets collaboration still very big. It's a $5 trillion-plus business. Talent markets, uh, some restrictions emerging in the United States about Chinese scholars coming here to study. What happens in the future regulation of product standards, given uh, China's lead in various technology categories? A big unresolved debate and fight between the two. So I think we're going to have a continuing economic war is the wrong term, but I would say engagement uh, of a, a hard nature. So better that we have a ceasefire on the trade war. Hopefully there'll be a, tra a phase two negotiation. I'm skeptical whether it will produce real results on the major unresolved question of continued Chinese subsidies uh, by the state of Chinese firms operating in the global market, which upsets competitive neutrality, because the Chinese will argue that's just our political model. Um, then there are these other economic, uh, shall I say, friction points that I've just referred to. So we'll come back to some of those maybe individually in a second, but let's talk maybe about the, the relative vulnerability of the two countries and the two economies in particular. Not surprisingly, uh, the Chinese and, and the Americans, and particularly Donald Trump himself, have said many times over the last however many months, year and a half or so that we've been in this up and down uh, trade conflict that uh, they can outlast the other, or they can, you know, they can manage it. Uh, we win is, is, is Mr. Trump's phase. Did you see enough in that in this period uh, before the deal was signed to make a judgment one way or another? Who's right about that? Are they both right in a way and both wrong in a way? Well, they're both spinning like fury to their domestic sure. markets <laughs> that this was a, uh, a a win for insert correct word Chinese and or American people, <laughs> the, uh, depending whether it's the People's Daily or the Washington Post. But um, the bottom line is, both of them were united in a common vulnerability not on objectively on trade, that's where China is infinitely more vulnerable because the simple size of uh, American Chinese exports to America, half a trillion dollars a year out of a $12 trillion Chinese economy, that is a big number in terms of lost Chinese GDP if we were all to go down the gurgle. Uh, whereas the American number out of a $20 trillion economy is you're looking at $150 billion worth of American exports to China. Still, not insignificant, particularly if you happen to be selling semiconductors, it represents half of all semiconductor sales. Um, that is uh, the China market from the United States. But um, objectively, uh, the impact on the American economy in terms of lost activity, uh, not as significant, though the flow-through impact on consumer prices would be politically uncomfortable, given that so much of, China, of imported electronics gear in this country, the United States, comes out of China. But the, where these two countries are united is the impact on the global uh, market sentiment. And President Trump and President Xi Jinping were united in a desire to calm royal markets because markets, at the end of the day, are about confidence. 
And if markets were concluding that these two guys were engaged in the shootout at the OK Corral um, on uh, trade and tariffs, that this could uh, have objectively a big hit on the Chinese economy, which in turn, because of its global significance, would have a big hit on the rest of the international economy. So market logic ultimately caused uh, the Trumpster, uh, the Donald, uh, as well as uh, Xi Dada, Uncle Xi, uh, to uh, basically have a uh, have an encounter with reality. So like you've been in this country long enough, Kevin Rudd, to now refer to our president as the Donald and the Trumpster. That's right. Wonderful. I've been here too long. Okay. Let's get to a word that you used a moment ago, uh, which I, I don't believe, at least in terms of defining the U.S.-China relationship, has been in the... Uh, in the vocabulary for too long, and that's decoupling, right? Um, and it means what it sounds like, that there's, and I guess it comes back to what's inevitable and what's not, but there are those who are saying that a great decoupling is already underway between the United States and China. Curious to know whether you think that's really true or not, but but also you had a phrase in one of the, the speeches that uh, is being published this week. Uh, you said a fully decoupled world meaning between the United States and China, would be a deeply destabilizing place. Mm. Explain for our audience what you mean by destabilizing and, and, and what, what if the two countries really are cleaved in that way, where we're headed. Well, earlier in our conversation, I ran through some of the dimensions of continued coupling right. and prospective decoupling. And it's a varied picture. In fact, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, addresses in this compendium deal specifically uh, with the uh, complexity of all of that. So it's it's uncertain which way it, would, it will go in aggregate. Um, I think it's very much in the balance. Uh, the negative drivers are trade and technology and talent. The positive drivers are capital markets, in my view. And then there's a question mark about the future of the currencies and what uh, is the future of the renminbi as a long-term challenge to the dollar. So I simply put that out there into the uncertain category. Um, I think the other thing, however, to be said about decoupling is our Chinese friends may be concluding that whatever America says, it's going to decouple anyway as a precursor to a form of containment of China, period. And the danger of that, as China embarks upon a strategy of national technological self-reliance, uh, is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. That is, as countries like China, the second largest economy in the world, on market exchange rates terms, concludes that for fear of being cut off in our traditional supplies, we're going to double down and become uh, self-reliant. So why is it dangerous and destabilizing, in the phrase that you just uh, referred to, is that for the rest of the world, this creates a series of binaries. As I said, I think uh, the Huawei case is just kind of uh, uh, starters in a four-course meal. Hmm. Um, and uh, An appetizing starter. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the soup is more likely to be a range of emerging artificial intelligence uh, uh, technologies, uh, which um, some of which we may not yet have heard of which will become common names as the 2020s, right. the decade of living dangerously unfolds. When we get to the main course, uh, it could come to questions of capital markets, uh, despite the high level of codependence at the moment. 
Um, and then uh, for the uh, dessert in this very uncomfortable meal, which will give us all indigestion, to sustain these appalling uh, metaphors uh, that I'm using in this conversation. <laughs> I think they're excellent. Uh, but the, uh, the rancid dessert would be a, a decision uh, to, uh, as it were, uh, set up uh, alternative currencies, the United States dollar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and people will argue about the probabilities of that. China, if it would get away with it, would like to do that because when China looks down the track, it sees how America has weaponized the dollar in uh, various financial, trade, and economic sanctions against both the North Koreans, the Iranians, and the Russians. And they wonder how long it will be before it happens to them. So therefore... What do they do about that? At present, they are minded not to for fear of the learned lessons from the Asian financial crisis of the 1990s uh, when they saw how American hedge funds and global hedge funds could destabilize the economies of various Asian countries by speculating on their currencies. And that's what happened you know, in Malaysia and elsewhere. But so the Chinese are very under a conservative Marxist-Leninist leadership, are very wary about uh, providing that level of vulnerability to external uh, capital markets slash financial markets in particular. But think about this. If China really becomes big, bigger, uh, and the projections are at will, do they get to a stage in critical mass terms that no gaggle of foreign hedge funds could actually present any objective destabilizing factor and do at that stage, notwithstanding uh, a non-traded, not, notwithstanding a floated RMB, dirty float or clean float, could the Chinese system navigate that internationally without fearing any real uh, vulnerabilities domestically? Another reason why it's the decade of living dangerously. Right. right. Before we leave tech, uh, just one follow-up, if I can. And I may—I'm not sure I have this right—but in a, an argument you have, you hear advanced a lot, I think, in China or by Chinese here, is when it comes to AI and deep learning and all these areas, uh, we're, we're we're investing in it. We're making it a high priority, and we have for some time now. And so, sure, we're winning. We're doing well. And by the way, we've got this incredible storehouse of, of data, which is the fuel for AI and all the rest. So you can contain us, but it isn't really fair because we're just, you know, we're winning fair and square here. What's wrong with that argument, if anything? Well, the Chinese have invested uh, enormously in artificial intelligence, just as they invested enormously a decade ago in what has now become 5G. They did it as a strategic national investment. This was not just the spontaneous combustion of a firm called Huawei. Um, they decided that they were going to take the commanding heights of next generation um, uh, mobile technologies. And as we know, 5G has enormous uh, general applications across all technology spaces because of convergence. And so AI is a similar national strategy. Look at the China 2025 uh, strategy, which was announced in 2015, um, where China again seeks to take explicitly in their own terms the commanding heights. So what's wrong with it in terms of the legitimacy of other critiques? It's what we discussed earlier in terms of the US-China trade deal. It's the level of state subsidy engaged to the extent that um, uh, American firms, uh, Korean firms, 
Japanese firms, uh, Taiwanese firms like TSMC, big producers of semiconductors, um, they will begin to question the extent to which this is any longer a level playing field. Right. That's the first thing. I think the second thing, uh, though, which you hear from the Europeans in particular is about, um, let's call it uh, data governance regimes, digital governance regimes. And you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work this out. Uh, China has a state-centric, a sovereign state view of data, which is, we got some data here, we the state own it. Thank you very much, no questions asked. Uh, the Europeans uh, have a uh, citizen's privacy uh, centrality to their global uh, data and digital management regimes. Uh, in the good old US of A, it's uh, whatever corporate America wants, thank you very much. Uh, it's the wild, wild west for corporates, as long as government's going to get to touch it. And there's a slow citizen's fight back against the big four in America. Yeah. But the governance regimes is the other set of concerns about the utility of that data and where it would be harvested and how it would and be used. And therefore the fairness, right? So it's uh, competitive neutrality on the first point, and let's call it the ethics of, uh, of uh, ultimate uh, digital and data governance. Now, you mentioned, uh, Kevin, a moment ago, the issue of talent in this country. And in, in one of your talks, you, you've called it a, a great decoupling in human talent. Uh, by which you're referring to uh, the students and scientists and others in this country, Chinese or Chinese-American, who uh, by their own accounts and sometimes others, the accounts of others, are coming under, under suspicion simply because of their nationality, sometimes for other reasons. Uh, it seemed, as I read uh, the collection of speeches that you've made in your writings, this seems to worry you almost as much as anything. Can you talk about that a little bit um, or, or upsets you uh, as much as any of the other issues that are, that are going on now? It does uh, disturb me enormously because it's where legitimate debates about uh, competitive neutrality in the economy and ultimate national security concerns bleeds into base racism. Um, and I cannot abide any form of racism. Um, and... Uh, and we look at the historical experience, whether it's of Japanese uh, Americans or Chinese Americans, um, uh, and I've got to say Chinese Australians, uh, it hasn't always been pleasant. It's been difficult. And so therefore, uh, the challenge for American public policy for the future, in my judgment, uh, is to uh, sufficiently quarantine legitimate and objective national security concerns on the one hand. Um, against uh, taking the lid off Pandora's box uh, to uh, allow the demons of racism to run right in this country um, as there's a danger in parallel terms to that happening in my own country, Australia. I have a view of the sophistication of our intelligence agencies. I've been Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of my own country. Uh, we're one of the five eyes. We work with the Americans very closely. I have some sense, therefore, of the capability of sure. these agencies. I've worked with them. Um, therefore, my own judgment is that, properly resourced, our agencies are perfectly capable of um, um, examining, uh, analyzing where any real as opposed to rhetorical problems exist in any particular f uh, areas of uh, research right. in, let's call them, um, uh, critically sensitive technological areas uh, in our universities or beyond our universities in America and Australia without uh, launching some anti-Chinese racist jihad, pardon me for mixing metaphors one more time. So I get really concerned about that as a matter of principle 
Um, but secondly, it's utterly self-defeating in terms of American interest. Look at the proportionalities of Chinese Americans and Indian Americans in Silicon Valley, for God's sake. Right. Uh, look at them across the entire tech research space worldwide, um, including in my own country. It's self-defeating for the United States to do this. And finally, so much of the pro-American constituency, which is still alive and well in China itself, comes from now generations of American-educated alums doing a whole bunch of interesting stuff in China sure. itself. So do you want to say to them all now, uh, sorry, door closed, uh, it was a mistake to have you and we don't want you again? I think that would be unwise. One of the great strengths of this country, America, is uh, sustained intergenerational decisions by administrations, Republican, Democrat, to keep America's doors wide open while being vigilant through the agencies, intelligence agencies, on core national security questions. These things are mutually achievable. Yep. Well said. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot now, you're, but you're such a keen uh, student of, of strategies, both Chinese towards the United States and I think uh, American and others towards China. In a few words or, or, or a phrase, can you uh, tell us what you think China's strategy towards the United States is and what the United States strategy towards China is, if it had to be on the cover of a report, let's say? Yeah, I know you're a journalist, but I'm not going to succumb to the temptation um, <laughs> of giving you a cheat. You used to be a journalist. Uh, of, being a, of giving you a, uh, a headline, whether it's either for a tabloid paper, two words, or a broadsheet newspaper. It's maximum, a podcast. You can have a few five more. Words. Well, thank you. But uh, having been in the political uh, world myself, I'll be sufficiently arrogant to say I'll use as many words as I like. <laughs> have at it. <laughs> so there's the gentle pushback. Um, and these are complex uh, concepts uh, to describe. Sure. In fact, let me back up one bit. There is almost a conceptual disease in this country, uh, America, to reduce everything to haiku. Uh, and that is, it's either got to be a snappy word like containment, George Kennan's word to describe uh, US strategy towards the Soviet Union from 1948 to 1991. Um, and so I almost find this bizarre uh, kind of competitive race uh, among um, analysts um, um, as well as commentators to find the new hip phrase to describe China bad, America good, um, um, China evil, uh, American virtuous, uh, or China aggressive, America peace-loving. Um, you know something? It's more complex than that. Yeah. So this is a general appeal through this podcast to welcome complexity uh, rather than engage in some bovine debate Amen. about uh, about stuff which can be reduced to two or three words on the, uh, on the back of a box of matches. Now, having got that off my chest, um, <laughs> so what's China after? Um, ten sentences. One, keep the party in power. Two, um, maintain the unity of the country, meaning regaining Taiwan. Three, grow the economy in order to enhance national power, but to overcome the middle income trap for Chinese citizens so that they can ultimately have developed country levels of income, thereby sustaining the party's legitimacy as well. Four, do it, however, now in a manner which doesn't kill the environment. 
because Chinese people want to have clean air to breathe as well. So sustainable growth is now no longer at the margins, it's at the centre. Five, modernise and expand the PLA to become uh, a regional peer of the United States and to give the United States enough to worry about globally. Six, um, consolidate China's 14 uh, neighbourly states, that is, states with whom it shares a land border, uh, in relationships which are benign and ultimately compliant with China's core interests, but not invading them. China has no interest in military occupation of any other country. Uh, seven, push the United States back to the second island chain uh, in East Asia and ultimately fragment American uh, alliances with Korea, uh, Japan and Australia uh, on the ground of the presence of the Chinese economy as a dominant factor in, um, in those countries' national politics. Um, then, uh, second last or third last would be on China's continental periphery to the west through the Belt and Road Initiative, turn Eurasia into China's next economic growth zone um, and doing a build out of the region's infrastructure in the same way China did domestically, but ultimately making it more compliant to China's long term foreign policy interests as well. Uh, finally, second last in the, in the rest of the developing world, which is the rest of Asia, the rest of Africa, the rest of Latin America, see those as long-term Chinese markets as well, uh, expand your economic footprint there, but also through the process, obtain sufficient support from them in global forums as national governments to defend China's multilateral uh, interests through the United Nations and other such entities. And finally, uh, on the global rules-based order, uh, increase China's presence uh, and uh, purchase uh, and influence in the existing global institutions, the UN, the Bretton Woods institutions, the G20 and the rest, while growing an entirely different set of institutions, which are much more Sinocentric, the AIIB, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and others like it. Apart from that, they've got plenty of time between midnight and two o'clock in the morning to go and have some <laughs> and fun. And let the record show that Kevin Rudd just ran through those ten parts of the Chinese strategy with no notes here. Uh, well, I've thought about this stuff for a while, and uh, the Chinese don't talk in these terms, by right. the way. But when I say to my Chinese interlocutors, this is the stuff that I lecture on at West Point, and they say, well... Yeah, <laughs> about right. And on the U.S. side, I think you intimate a little bit in some of your speeches, if I'm not mistaken, that there is an absence of a strategy a bit on the American side towards China. Yeah, I'd say at this stage of the process, the American political class, Republican, Democrat, have an attitude about China, but they don't have a strategy for dealing with China. Right. Um, in fact, if I could describe the American attitude is... We're damn mad because they're not playing fairly. Mm -hmm. No, I get that. But can I say to my American friends, uh, attitude does not equal strategy. Right. It doesn't need equal tactics. There's a second reason as well. The White House is a house divided uh, under the Trump administration um, between those who are full-blown containment um, uh, right-wingers through to more middle-of-the-road, let's just get the economic relationship sorted out. 
uh, through to uh, those again at one extreme of the argument uh, who would say, uh, let's really embark upon a serious Cold War and let's uh, do what we can to crush the Chinese economy now while we still have a chance to do so. So if you look carefully at the internal debates of the Trump administration, they bounce around those three constituencies. At a strategic level, the administration correctly will point to the national security strategy of um, end of 17, where China was formally designated as a strategic competitor. You will also look at the objectivity of the trade war. Uh, it was launched um, and it's been conducted, but as yet with an unclear and unclean resolution. So when I say America has an attitude rather than a strategy, it's not just a throwaway line. It's just my observation frankly, of a house divided in Washington. And the Democrats uh, focused at this stage on defeating Trump. Uh, if we asked for the Democrat strategy for dealing with China on day one, uh, they don't have it yet, but I'm sure a whole bunch of intelligent people are working on it, uh, but we're unlikely to see that until after a new administration's formed, if it's formed. Well, uh, you, you've uh, in a way half answered what was to be my last question, which is what difference does it make? Uh, in terms of what we've been talking about, avoidable war, tough decade, uh, or how it's seen from China, whether Donald Trump is reelected or not? My view is that uh, the Chinese on balance would prefer to see Trump reelected. Really? Many in America will find that counterintuitive given the um, dynamics of the trade war. But from a Chinese perspective, uh, Trump... Um, has been keen to settle phase one uh, of the war from a Chinese perspective. He hasn't uh, given the US military uh, authorization to embark upon any new robust military measures against China and the South China Sea or elsewhere. And from a Chinese perspective, uh, Trump is monumentally disinterested in human rights. Right. And so from a Chinese perspective, that's kind of Half win, win, win. Now, will that change with the second Trump administration? The Chinese don't know that. If there are Chinese concerns, it's whether Trump, unconstrained by the disciplines of, a, uh, of a, the need for a further re-elect, uh, lurches towards the containment side of the House. But on balance, I think that's improbable simply because Donald Trump, they've observed, is a markets man. And if uh, China was to tank the entire relationship with the United States, with, uh, with the People's Republic of China, the economic consequences in market confidence around the world would go through the floor. So that's why I think the Chinese on balance would prefer to see Trump uh, re-elected. Uh, and on the Dem side, uh, I think what the Chinese um, are most concerned about is the re-emergence of a Hillary Clinton-type phenomenon, not in the personality of the president, but in terms of, let's call it, the rigor of the, uh, the strategic approach towards China, which uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, would have delivered because she was a vastly experienced Secretary of State, um, and that there are enough Clintonians uh, and continued uh, Obamaristas, um, to coin a phrase, uh, to uh, form the engine room of a political uh, foreign policy and intelligence policy and economic policy establishment under a Democrat presidency to, uh, as it were, resolve a strategy. Um, I think, difficult to say, it would depend ultimately on the nature of uh, any Democrat president, 
different under Biden than it would be under Sanders or Warren. Um, but I think the Chinese are more concerned about the possibility of that occurring, particularly if fueled by more baseload uh, Democratic Party sentiment out of the left about China on trade practices and human rights, which, as you know, as a long-term observer, Tom, has been part of the Democrat Party's uh, critique of China for decades. It's not new. Yeah. Kevin Rudd's collection of speeches, The Avoidable War, is out now. Uh, you can find it at asiasociety.org. Uh, Kevin, great to talk to you as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tom, for inviting me. That'll do it for this week's episode. You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast and keep up with what's going on with us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Michelle Florcruz. See you next time.